Welcome to Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. This is a very special episode. The best of Creative Codex. It's meant to commemorate a rare podcast achievement. The show just passed 100,000 listens. (coughs) Woo! Crazy. Now, I know in the grand scheme of things, in our attention economy, 100,000 is not that much. But the truth is, this is an entirely self-produced show. I don't have a partnership with some enormous publisher or support from an existing podcast network or corporate marketing departments. For better or worse, every inch of this show has passed through my fingertips. I started Creative Codex three years ago by myself, and although I've collaborated with and featured a wide variety of really talented individuals on the show, it's been an entirely self-produced and self-funded passion project. So. With that said, I am incredibly grateful that we've reached 100,000 listens. As of this recording, it's at 108,000. But even more than that, I am incredibly grateful that for the first time, Creative Codex seems to be getting some momentum. The audience is growing. In this last month alone, the stats show me we've had more listens per week than in any other month in the last three years. Now, I'm not a marketing guy. I don't do statistics. But as an artist, I know when the audience is responding, when they're feeling something. And that lights a fire in me to keep going and to make this thing even better. So thank you for listening and thank you for giving this show your time. Now, let's highlight what makes Creative Codex unique. Things you won't find on any other podcast. Which brings us to the topic of this episode, sonic simulations. What is a sonic simulation? It's the use of sound design, music, and narrative to convey an experience, or a time and place. On this show, we use sonic simulations to engage your imagination. I'll give you an example. Here is one of my personal favorite clips. It's about the notoriously brilliant electrical engineer Nikola Tesla. This segment takes place in Lower Manhattan during the early 1900s, when Tesla had a lab at 46 Houston Street. The clip comes from episode 5, Nikola Tesla and the Paradox of Genius. One sunny afternoon, Nikola Tesla was in his Houston Street laboratory in Manhattan. He was experimenting with oscillators, which are electronic devices used to emit sound waves and even vibrations. He attached the little device to a support beam in his lab that ran the length of the building. He switched it on and started to gradually adjust the frequency it was emitting. Until, bingo, the beam started to vibrate. He had found the resonant frequency of the column. The test was proving to be a success. He started to feel a vibration in the floor as the sound wave traveled down the length of the beam and spread under his feet. He increased the intensity on the knob. It was just a quiver. But his downstairs neighbor began to notice his ceiling shaking. The other neighbors thought it was a heavy truck banging down the street. But the shaking persisted and grew stronger and stronger. The vibration spread across the entire floor of the laboratory and into the neighboring buildings. Some of the locals in Little Italy and Chinatown began spilling onto the streets, thinking an earthquake was happening. The trembling was incessant and horrific. 
causing windows to shatter, pipes to stretch. The local police on Mulberry Street, they felt it too. An earthquake in New York City? Impossible. The police station was right around the corner from Tesla's lab, and they were all too familiar with the strange lights and sounds which would happen throughout the day and night from that building. As the ground shook, furniture was moving, pipes were breaking, and the officers thought the police headquarters was about to collapse. Two police rushed out the door toward Tessa's lab. They reached his building. The vibrations felt even stronger there. They ran up the stairwell, facing the fear that the building might collapse on them. As they burst through the door to Tesla's lab, they were met with a bizarre sight. Tesla, swinging a heavy sledgehammer at one of the iron beams, he smashed a little device off and the vibrations instantly stopped. No more earthquake. Tesla was surprised to see the two uniformed police officers just staring at him in shock. He approached them with the sledgehammer still in his hands and said, Gentlemen, I'm sorry, but you are just a trifle too late to witness my experiment. I found it necessary to stop it suddenly and unexpectedly in an unusual manner, just as you entered. If you will come around this evening, I will have another oscillator attached to this platform, and each of you can stand on it. You will, I am sure. Find it a most interesting and pleasurable experience. Now, you must leave, for I have many things to do. Good day, gentlemen. I just love that image of Nikola Tesla wielding a sledgehammer and the speechless looks on the faces of the police officers who barged into something far beyond their comprehension. So, I hope that was a useful example of a sonic simulation. I really like this idea that this type of listening engages your imagination in a way that we are rarely engaged today. Everywhere you turn, you have a screen bombarding you with concrete imagery. The only time we might be engaged in this imaginative way is when reading a book. So I like this idea that the medium of podcasting has the potential to re-engage us with an inner imaginal realm. On a more behind the scenes side note, that Tesla segment took a while to produce. It was especially tricky to get the earthquake sound right. It required a lot of tracks, layering things shaking, water glasses on tables, furniture, rattling pipes, and the slight sound of dust crackling. If you want to know more about that uncommon and brilliant man, Nikola Tesla, do check out the rest of that episode. Just scroll down in your podcast feed to episode 5, Nikola Tesla and the Paradox of Genius. I'm sure you'll love it. The next clip comes to us from our Emily Dickinson series, episodes 18 and 19. When I started this one, I honestly didn't know much about the poetess of Amherst, but I quickly fell in love with her writing and felt deep connections to her life story as an outlier among her family and community. I felt it also embodied a key element of creativity, solitude. Emily wrote all of her poems in the privacy of her room, sculpting the syllables, crafting the rhymes, and perfecting the phrases. Her pursuit of perfection behind a closed door is such a powerful analogy to the creative process. Here's a clip from that episode.
It is May 20th, 1886, in the small town of Amherst, in Massachusetts. It's a warm summer afternoon. The golden sun beams down on the Victorian home of the Dickinson family. A home affectionately known to the locals as the Homestead. Lavinia Dickinson is on the second floor. She slowly opens the door to her sister's room. The modest space is filled with an otherworldly stillness. This is the room her sister Emily spent most of the 55 years of her life alone. Countless hours reading books and writing letters. She sees Emily's small square writing table in front of the room's southwest window, a table that every winter is illuminated by a majestic shaft of sunlight. Lavinia breaks the stillness and slowly enters. She approaches a chest of drawers standing four feet high. This, she knows, is where Emily kept her papers. One of her dying wishes was for Lavinia to burn her correspondences. All the letters she received from friends, family, and acquaintances throughout her 55 years. Now that the awful formality of the funeral is done, she tends to that promise. Lavinia crouches on the floor and begins to sort through the papers. This feels like a violation of Emily's most personal possessions. As she looks through the countless letters, Lavinia can't help but tear up. These letters are cherished pieces of her sister, which she cannot bear to burn to ash, but she will honor the wishes of her dear Emily. She puts them aside and unlocks another drawer. These papers seem a bit more organized than the last. Lavinia carefully lifts them out and notices they are stacked in bundles. Each bundle is neatly tied with a white ribbon. Strange, she's never seen this before and Emily never mentioned it. She looks one bundle over, holding it in her lap she takes a look around the room reflexively to check if Emily is there, about to stop her. She curiously unties the ribbon. It is a stack of papers folded and sewn together with slender rope into handmade books. Why would Emily have sewn her letters together like this? Maybe each bundle is from a different person. She carefully opens the first one. This is not a letter. It's a short poem in Emily's handwriting. A word is dead when it is said, some say. I say, 
It just begins to live that day. Lavinia turns the page. Another poem. The soul selects her own society, then shuts the door to her divine majority, present no more. Unmoved, she notes the chariots pausing at her low gate. Unmoved, an emperor be kneeling upon her mat. I've known her from an ample nation. Choose one, then close the valves of her attention like stone. And on the facing page, another. She is confused. She picks up another bundle, undoes the ribbon, and opens it. A poem. She looks back in the drawer. Dozens and dozens of bundles, all neatly sewn together and tied up in ribbons. Each bundle containing hundreds and hundreds of poems. Lavinia Dickinson has unknowingly stumbled on the greatest discovery of American literature, Emily Dickinson's 1,789 poems. For the Emily series, I collaborated with my friend, Frances Lovett. She provided the perfect vocal depiction of Emily. I remember a few years ago hearing Frances reading a passage from a book aloud, and I was immediately taken by her nuanced control and expression. I filed that knowledge away in a brain cabinet a few years past, and as I was working on this episode, I thought, who is going to play Emily? Surely I can't read these. We need a woman's voice. And immediately, Frances came to mind. I called her up, and to her credit, she was open to the idea. I mailed her my best microphone because we don't live in the same state, and we got to work. The result, I think, really speaks for itself. I'm really proud of what we accomplished, and Francis's voice truly brought Emily to life. There's a link in the episode details where you can follow Francis and her work through Instagram as well. You can listen to our Emily Dickinson series in the podcast feed. Those are episodes 18 and 19. Next up, we have a short clip depicting one of the most persistent myths of rock and roll, the bluesman who sells his soul to the devil at the crossroads. When I first started to play guitar, this was one of the first stories I heard. It's part of the lore of rock and roll. I heard about it even before I learned how to play the blues. The myth is associated with one of the greatest blues musicians of all time, Robert Johnson. He was a singer, songwriter, and guitarist, active during the 1930s, in the Mississippi Delta. And even to this day, when you listen to his recordings, you would swear there must be two guitars playing. For most guitarists, due to its virtuosity, his playing continues to be nearly impossible to replicate. This next clip, from episode 15, takes us back to that fabled moment, when Robert Johnson went to the crossroads. It's 1931 on the outskirts of a small town in Mississippi. The sun has just set on the flat plains of the distant horizon. Darkness stretches for miles, not a soul in sight. A skinny 20-year-old man with a guitar strapped to his back is walking out here, 
all alone on the dirt road. His name is Robert Johnson. Friends say he has been missing for six months now. He's been walking for a long time, but he's finally here, the crossroads. A rare place where four roads meet, where the energies of countless people's lives cross at a single point, making an X right in the earth. He's in the center of that large X, and he falls to his knees. Nothing but silence. It's like he's waiting there for something, someone. He swivels his guitar from his back into his hands and begins to play. He plays for a long while. No cars, no people pass him. Finally, Around midnight, he hears something behind him. Footsteps. A tall, dark man appears by Robert's left side. He is wearing an impressive white suit and a black fedora. His walking cane has an intricate carving of a serpent climbing upward. This strange man stands almost seven feet tall. His eyes are black as night. His large hand opens toward Robert, who hands him the guitar he was playing. The man tunes it. And hands it back. He makes eye contact and nods, and Robert nods back. The man turns around and intently returns into the shadows. Robert looks around, no soul in sight. He straps on the guitar and begins to play a song he's never heard. Robert played the blues. There's a few movies out there about him, and he is included as a character in many others. For example, the wandering bluesman character in O Brother Where Art Thou is based on Robert Johnson. And there is even a pretty entertaining Ralph Macchio film from the 80s that features Robert Johnson as a main character called Crossroads from 1986, where Ralph Macchio has to learn to play the blues to beat the devil in a guitar duel. Pretty good story. If you want to learn more about Robert Johnson's life and music, 
check out episodes 15 and 16 in the podcast feed. The next Sonic Simulation is from a recent series I finished, the Vincent series. Since April of 2021, I dedicated all of my free time to learning about and understanding Vincent van Gogh's life and artwork. I studied his 900 paintings, I read a 900-page biography, and read through him and his brother's 600 correspondences. Yeah, looking back, I may have overdone it a little, but honestly, I felt it was the only way to really do Vincent justice. His story and his life gets repurposed in so many ways in our pop culture that he is essentially a caricature of himself. He is the epitome of the tortured artist trope. For those without intimate knowledge of him, he is not a human being. He is a meme. So I really did feel it was necessary to start from square one, to read his personal letters, to let him tell his story as much as was possible. So throughout the four episodes of the Vincent series, you end up hearing Vincent and his brother Theo telling the story. I did this as often as was possible, and only resorted to my own commentary for the sake of continuity. The result? It turns out Vincent was a complicated individual, with a rare and beautiful mind, but also with serious and, sometimes, irreconcilable flaws. This is a clip from episode 22, Vincent van Gogh, A Strange Boy. It is a cool summer night in southern France, in a charming little town called the province of Saint Remy. The midnight sky is alive with stars. The date is June 8th, 1889. You are walking up a hill on a dry dirt path lined with olive trees, which pass on your right and left. Their small leaves shimmer silver in the moonlight. When you look to your right, you can see the town of Saint Remy in the distance with its old world charm. The two-story homes and narrow alleys are all dressed in midnight blue, save for the occasional window warmly illuminated by an oil lamp. We aren't walking to the town, though. We are climbing the hill to visit St. Paul's Mental Asylum. It is the current home of a certain penniless artist, whose unique paintings in a hundred years' time will collectively be worth billions of dollars. But for now, and for the next year, those paintings will be made here. Up ahead, you see that the stone archways and pyramid-peaked Tower of St. Paul's make it look more like a monastery than a mental hospital. That's because it is. It was built 800 years ago in the 11th century as a monastery. Then in 1605, Franciscan monks converted St. Paul's into a mental asylum. The secluded nature of such a place serves two purposes. One, the patients are surrounded by the calming effects of nature and removed from the agitating demands of city life, which often exacerbate their misunderstood mental disorders. Two, the secluded nature of such a place makes it an ideal destination to send troubled family members, loved ones you might wish to keep out of sight and out of mind. And here we are, these 
vast wooden doors are at least a few hundred years old. The asylum is asleep, but even so, it stirs. It's currently home to only 20 patients in various stages of mental illness. Psychology is still such a new field in the late 1800s that doctors have no lasting solutions or treatments. The best they can offer is a place like this, where the needs of those with misunderstood afflictions can be tended to in the hopes that the monastic lifestyle aids their condition. We are on the first floor, in a long and empty corridor with vaulted ceilings. Darkness engulfs the space, except for the soft amber glow seeping out of a doorframe across the hall. This room is usually locked at night. It is a recreational room, only meant for the daytime, but it seems someone has snuck in. Inside stands Vincent van Gogh, his body hunched in shadow near an oil lamp. He seems possessed. You glimpse a flash of his wild eyes as he intently swirls paint on a canvas in front of him. He glances through the iron bars of the window, like through a prison cell, to gaze at the midnight landscape in perfect view and returns to his canvas, a painting of that same landscape without the iron bars, a painting of cypress trees, a distant town, rolling hills, and a star-filled sky. His painting is suffused with deep blues and vibrant yellows. The moon and stars shimmer with a dynamic motion that brings them to life on the canvas. Right now, at 37 years old, Van Gogh is an unknown patient in a mental asylum. In less than 50 years, he will be one of the most famous artists of all time. And in 100 years, this painting, Starry Night, will be one of the most recognizable paintings in the world. Hotel owners will furnish their hallways with prints of it. It will be a painting credit card companies will feature as a design for their cultured customers. An image so recognizable, songs will be written about it. Yet all the while, few will know that Vincent painted Starry Night from his asylum window in between bouts of debilitating psychotic episodes. How did we get here? Can madness and genius be contained in one individual? Can psychosis and the rarest artistry be contained in one mind? These contradictions pervade the story of Vincent van Gogh. And in the final three years of his life, they culminate in a whirlwind. If you are listening to Creative Codex for the first time, welcome. Welcome to the show. I hope you're enjoying it. As with any creative endeavors, the person who is creating doesn't always know what the thing is that they are doing or what it's going to be. It's a paradoxical situation, like starting a painting without foreknowledge of what it's going to become. 
For example, three years ago when I started this show, I didn't quite know what it was going to be, honestly. I just knew I wanted to explore the creative process through some of my personal creative idols, famous historical figures that I was influenced by. But only in this last year do I see the picture coming into view. This show isn't just about the biographies of historical figures. This is the story of creativity, as told through the lives of history's greatest creative geniuses. Figures like Leonardo da Vinci, Emily Dickinson, Carl Jung, Frida Kahlo, Robert Johnson, and many more. There is a thread that connects them all across centuries of time, making this rich tapestry that stretches across continents, through borders, and lives in the hearts and minds of every human on earth. The story of creativity is nothing less than our story, the story of the human experience. That's what the show means to me, and it serves as the guiding ethos for the decisions, episodes, and topics that we cover here. With that said, on to the next clip. This one comes from the Carl Jung series I did, episodes 11 and 12, in which we focus on a very unique work of literature written by Dr. Carl Jung called The Red Book. The Red Book is an illuminated manuscript that Jung worked on in private that is filled with dreams and visions he experienced in deep meditative states. He wrote them all down in painstaking detail for the purpose of analyzing and understanding the contents of his unconscious mind and the potential collective unconscious. This particular clip comes from one such vision involving a descent into a cave, a rich symbol for the unconscious mind. In the Red Book, there is an entry for December 12, 1913, which describes one of these visionary meditation sessions with startling results. The entry is entitled, Descent into Hell in the Future. Jung writes, In the following night, the air was filled with many voices. A loud voice called, I am falling. Others cried out confused and excited during this. Where to? What do you want? Should I entrust myself to this confusion? I shuddered. It is a dreadful deep. Do you want me to leave myself to chance, to the madness of my own darkness? Whither? Whither? You fall, and I want to fall with you, whoever you are. The spirit of the depths opened my eyes and I caught a glimpse of the inner things, the world of my soul, the many formed and changing. I see a gray rock face along which I sink into great depths. A dwarf clad entirely in leather stood before it, minding the entrance. I stand in black dirt up to my ankles in a dark cave. Shadows sweep over me. I am seized by fear, but I know I must go in. I crawl through a narrow crack in the rock and reach an inner cave whose bottom is covered with black water. But beyond this, I catch a glimpse of a luminous red stone, which I must reach. It is a six-sided crystal which gives off a cold, reddish light. I wade through the muddy water. The cave is full of the frightful noise of shrieking voices. I take the stone. It covers a dark opening in the rock. I hold the stone in my hand, 
peering around inquiringly. I do not want to listen to the voices. They keep me away. This dark hole, I want to know where it leads and what it says. An oracle? Is this the place of Pythia? Here, something wants to be uttered. I place my ear to the opening. I hear the flow of underground waters. I see the bloody head of a man on the dark stream. Someone wounded, someone slain floats there. I take in this image for a long time, shuddering. I see a large black scarab floating past on the dark stream. In the deepest reach of the stream shines a red sun, radiating through the dark water. There I see, and a terror seizes me, small serpents on the dark rock walls, striving towards the depths where the sun shines. A thousand serpents crowd around, veiling the sun. Deep night falls. A red stream of blood, thick red blood springs up, surging for a long time, then ebbing. I am seized by fear. What did I see? If you want to hear more about Dr. Ka Jung's incredible red book, do check out episodes 11 and 12 in the podcast feed. In researching that material, I was able to track down Jung's own account for what meditative methods he used to engage these visionary experiences. I experimented with it myself, and finding it incredibly useful, I recorded and produced a guided meditation called The Digging Method. You can also find that guided meditation in the podcast feed after episode 12. If you're enjoying the show and want to support Creative Codex in some way, head over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash mjdorian, M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N, where you can gain access to all of the exclusive Creativity Tip episodes at all support levels, and get a free download of the Creative Codex soundtrack at the $10 tier level. I'll link that in the episode details, patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. If you're digging this particular episode and want to buy me a coffee, or five, the show basically runs on Arabica beans, feel free to tip me on Venmo. Just search Creative Codex in the business section. That's at Creative Codex, C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E-C-O-D-E-X one word. And similarly, if you're into crypto like I am, feel free to tip me with some Shiba Inu, Bitcoin, Ethereum in my Coinbase wallet, which you can find on the Coinbase wallet app by simply searching at MJ Dorian. And thank you in advance for all of your support. Our next clip is another segment from the Vincent series. It comes specifically from episode 25. This one was a very unique challenge, as you'll see, but I'm really proud of how it came out. In it, I depict the moment when Vincent's brother, Theo, receives news that Vincent has been shot. It's an impossible subject to represent, but I was very much captivated by the emotions and thoughts that Theo must have been experiencing in that moment, and how those could be conveyed through sound design, narration, and music. I hope you find that it was effective.
Vincent van Gogh is shot on July 27th, 1890. The next morning, July 28th, Theo van Gogh is opening up shop at his Paris art gallery. An unexpected man barges in. He scans the open space and hastily approaches. He says, Theo. Theo nods with an alarmed gaze. He recognizes him as the Dutch painter, Anton Hershig, whom he personally sent to accompany Vincent in Auvers, a small town on the northwestern outskirts of Paris only a month ago. The man extends an envelope to him and says, it is from Dr. Gachet. It is about Vincent. For a moment, time freezes. The pendulum hovers still in the liminal space between instances. For a moment, Theo notices the ivory envelope stretched out in front of him, his name penned in black script. He catches the aroma of tobacco from the artist's sleeve and notices the stubble on his face indicating he likely skipped his morning routine to catch the express train back to Paris. The urgency of the moment buzzes like deja vu in his skull. This is no ordinary letter. He feels it in his bones. It is an invitation, and once opened, the events which follow cannot be undone. The words cannot be unread. You cannot uncross a threshold into an abyss. He notices the grace of the slanted morning sunlight as it breaks through the storefront windows and recalls how Vincent's first obsession was to capture sunlight in his paintings. The pendulum arcs left as the tide rushes back in. Theo grabs it. Dear Theo, Vincent has wounded himself. The situation is urgent. I would not presume to tell you what to do, but I believe that it is your duty to come, in case of any complications that might occur. Sincerely, Dr. Gachet. Theo's free hand covers his mouth in shock. His body jolts into action as he grabs his hat and rushes for the door. He boards the first train out of Paris. heading to the small town of Auvers. His hand has not let go of that note. Staring out of the window, all he sees are echoes of the past. The familiarity of this scenario does not escape him. It was only a year and seven months ago when he was rushing to Arles on a southbound train on Christmas morning after receiving the alarming telegram that Vincent had also wounded himself. That day, he arrived at the hospital to discover his brother with a blood-soaked bandage wrapped around his head and a missing ear. What fresh hell awaits him now? Surely, it can't be worse than that. He is alive after all. Our final clip is near and dear to my heart. It's from the second episode of Creative Codex. It's titled Leonardo da Vinci's Secret. The show was still in its infancy, and we had about 10 listeners then, including my mom and myself. 
Now our listener community is in the thousands. But it's interesting to note, just looking at things objectively, that even then, from this clip, there was this motive for using sound design, music, and narrative to anchor the listener in the story. In this clip, we travel back to Florence, Italy in the 1400s, making a pilgrimage to Leonardo da Vinci's art studio to learn the secret of his creative genius. It's on these streets of Florence, Italy, in the late 1400s that Leonardo grew up and it's in this city that he started some of his most famous paintings. Part of the secret to his genius is Florence itself. He was not a hermit off on some mountainside separate from society and culture. He was a man of his time and he was constantly surrounded by the beauty and elegance of this fabled city at a rare time when Florence was considered by many to be the capital of the world, unsurpassed in cultural riches. You can hear the distant church bells of Florence's many towering cathedrals. The air is refreshing and brisk in the afternoon sun as many of these side streets hide in the shade. And you can smell the aroma of fresh-baked bread and cured meats from local shops. Oh, what's this? Let's stop for a moment. What's that? There's a merchant. She's set up shop here across the street. She's selling fresh bread and cheese. Buongiorno. And pet birds, which are quite popular here. There are anecdotes, actually, about Leonardo, that one of his favorite things was to watch birds fly. So he would often buy a bird from one of these merchants take it out of its cage and release it, watching intently as it fluttered away. This merchant's also selling a brand new kind of distraction that is sweeping the country. Books. She has a stack of newly printed books. And it was in 1440 that the Gutenberg Press was actually invented, and it revolutionized the way people learn and entertain themselves. Leonardo was an avid reader. He saw reading as a way to educate himself about art, science, philosophy, and he never received a formal education, partially because he was an illegitimate son and partially because he actually detested school. But what he lacked in formal education, well, we know he more than made up for in his personal studies and inquisitive research. What's that? You hear it? It's a distant violin. It must be a street musician.
beautiful. Grazie. And the entrance to Leonardo's studio is right through that gate and up the stairs. The studio is actually part of a convent here called the Santissima Annunziata. Right this way. Master's workshop. If only Leonardo was here, we could ask him our questions. Imagine that. But he must be out at this time. I'm sure he won't mind if we look around a little bit. What's that? It's one of the paintings he's currently working on, but it's covered with a tarp, probably to protect it. I wonder, is it an unfinished Mona Lisa, which we know he actually started around this area of the country in Florence? Apparently, the woman who the Mona Lisa is based after was a frequent parishioner here, and it's possible he would have run into her near the convent. Or maybe it's one of the other ones, the lady with the ermine. And here we see a pile of books, Ah, Leonardo the avid reader, Leonardo the bookworm. But it's positioned near his easel. Often, as Leonardo would be working on a painting, one of his assistants would open up a book and begin reading. as a way of keeping him entertained and engaged and learning while he was doing something else. It's actually very much like a podcast. Perhaps he invented those too. And what's that? A section in the far left corner with drapery to block off the line of sight as if uh, for privacy from prying eyes. There is a long wooden table six feet long by three feet wide. Some sullied blankets lay nearby in a wicker basket. Huh. This must be where Leonardo did his most forbidden work, the dissection of corpses bodies that were loaned to him for documentation by hospitals. The church considered this kind of work highly disgraceful, so Leonardo knew to keep it hidden. And here it is. Leonardo wanted to see behind the skin, to understand the muscles, the sinew, and the bones of the human body. He believed there was a connection between our emotions and how they transmitted motion in our muscles, in our posture, in a pose that we might hold for a moment as we're speaking. And he was a student of Alberti, who was famous for writing an essential treatise on painting, in which Alberti states that a true artist builds their human subjects from the bones, then the muscles, then the naked figure, and finally the clothes. And this 
gives a truly lifelike demeanor to the body and to the subject of your painting. I hope you enjoyed this clip show, the best of Creative Codex, Sonic Simulations. It was really thought-provoking for me to look back on the show and how it's evolved over the last three years. In those early episodes, I noticed my voice is sometimes a bit different, sometimes veering into a Dan Carlin-type seriousness, which seems comical to me now. But the ethos, the spirit of the work has been consistent, and that fire still burns into the late night hours as I work on the next episodes. As Emily said, a still volcano life that flickered in the night. Speaking of which, the next episode, it will be a return to Carl Jung's Red Book. We have some unfinished business with the good doctor, specifically the final chapter of the book and the mysterious text known as the seven sermons to the dead. Once again, if you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting in some way. As you may have noticed, there were no mattress ads or underwear promotions. You can also get exclusive stuff for supporting at my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash MJ Dorian. Alternatively, if you want to leave a tip and buy me some books or coffees on Venmo, just search in the businesses tab at Creative Codex, one word. And if you're a crypto head, my Coinbase wallet is at MJ Dorian. Thank you all for your support. This has been the best of Creative Codex. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>